Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Aratu Asamma Sambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Aratu Asamma Sambhutasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Aratu Asamma Sambhutasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami Well, I'm happy to be back. And I'm just like, delighted to see how many people are here. So, you know, it's wonderful in a peer-led group that it's so well and thriving and strong and an increasing number diversity. So hats off for the good work that everyone has been doing. And hats off for all of you for coming and showing up. Um, It's really important and impressive. I wanted to talk tonight about um, really kind of like a fundamental map or teaching that the the Buddha gave and then then see if I can dial it in to um, what might be useful in terms of what actually goes on in community life, okay? So um, one of the core teachings that he gave or gradual teachings that he gave was is that what's really needed in the path is to practice generosity, to cultivate precepts, and then from with that as a basis to practice meditation. So he didn't do what we do, which is just to start meditating, he started people with talking about the importance of generosity. Now, one of the reasons why he used generosity as like a foundation stone is because what is needed is to have an access to our own goodness, to actually be tethered to our own goodness. So when we give, when we give of our time, when we give of our energy, when we give of our resources, when we give of our money, when we share the things that we have, We are moving against the tide of wanting and holding and collecting and grabbing and possessing. And we're moving in a direction of sharing. And the person who benefits the most from that action is the person who gives. Okay? So no matter how much wealth you give away, you are the greatest recipient of the benefit of that gift. Because in giving, and particularly when you give with a motivation not for gain, not for fame, not to be seen or acknowledged or have extra brownie points and stripes on your status bar, but to give because of the joy of giving and to give because it is good to give, then what it does is it tethers you to your own goodness. Now, this is not a small thing. This is actually a really, really, really important thing. Because in order for us to be able to do the work that has to be done in meditation, we need to have access to ballast that actually tethers us to something that is wholesome, that is good, that is solid. And when our ballast is connected to our own resource of goodness, we have access to something that's really important. Now, 
I could go on about this for a really long time, partly because it's so important and partly because we don't get it and all of the ways that we don't get it. You know, we don't get that it's actually important that we have an understanding of our own goodness. And it's important that we begin to reverse that, to change that, to actually change the tide. Now, in our modern culture, one of the things that I hear a lot when I teach is people have critical, judgmental minds. And we are constantly thinking critical and judgmental thoughts. And our critical, judgmental thoughts are as much about ourselves as they are about others and the world and the politics and the politicians and everything else. When we give, generosity is an antidote against critical and judgmental mind. It cuts against it. It causes another force to start to be developed, another tide to flow. So when we're trying to figure out how do we deal with all these critical and judgmental thoughts, generosity is a way. Service is a way. Helping is a way. Giving is a way. Because when we do that, then we are immediately connected with the blessings and the joy that comes from that act of giving. And that act of giving then can buoyant and radiate and uh, lift, uplift the mind. Generosity is an important topic, and it's fundamental, it's foundational, and it's really important because we need to have that resource in order to do the work. Now, the other thing that the Buddha talked about was precepts, and he talked about five precepts that are refraining from killing and stealing, sexual misconduct, incorrect speech and drugs and drink, which cause confusion. So... Anytime I'm in a group and I hear about recovery groups, it's like, yes, you know, because it's like you don't have ground to practice unless you get the, the garbage out of your bloodstream, you know, that keeps you from being able to think clearly. So one of the greatest things that a community can do is to do whatever they can to help people stay sober and to get people sober. Because without that, you don't have... You don't have enough to meet what's arising. Okay? When we look at this bundle of precepts, there's two that really stand out, or there's three. Okay, so I mentioned the alcohol. You need that in order to be able to do the others. But then what you really need to focus on is, is that in the first precept, when we refine it to the really the kind of like the internal meaning of it, It's not about killing people, it's about doing harm. And what we need to wake up to is the kinds of ways in which the habits of our mind are harmful. The way we slander ourselves or criticize or berate or shame or, um, you know, we are our worst enemies. And if we listened and wrote down the things that we tell ourselves and we had somebody else say that to us, we could take them to court and sue them. (laughs) And win. And win a very substantial settlement. Because what we do to ourselves is rotten. 
and it's not helpful, it's not skillful, it's not wise, it's not compassionate, and it's not furthering. So when we take the precept to stop killing as an encouragement to stop harming, then we absolutely need to get some traction on this stuff that goes on all the time that's just like wallpaper, you know, and begin to see it for what it is and stop believing it, that that actually is not worthy of following, of believing, of identifying with. It has got to stop. Like, this is not negotiable. This has got to stop. Okay? So, then we move into the arena of speech. Now, living in a monastery, one of the places that was easiest to fall out of living with skillful precepts was around right speech. Because our habits are often the movement of our thoughts. And our thoughts have not transformed from being motivated by aversion or desire or ignorance. And so our thoughts condition our speech. Our speech just flows out. And there is nothing that can be quicker, divisive, and detrimental to a community as if people start speaking about each other in ways that are really unskillful. You know, or the kind of the pleasure of two people getting together and trashing a third person that's not there. You know, there's some kind of bonding experience and delight that we feel about agreeing on how much this other person drives us nuts. You know, and likewise, there is nothing that is more powerful than a community that has practiced with right speech and is committed to not speaking unskillfully, to speaking skillfully, to being honest, to not being divisive, to doing things to pull people together, to listen and to respond appropriately. Okay? So speech can be something that destroys a community, And speech can be something that creates like a fabric that is so strong and solid that people feel safe. They feel they can trust. They feel that they belong. And they feel like they want to be part of this. And it's the choice. Because at any moment, it can move from one to the other. So it's not like you can practice this and then move out of harm's way. It's a practice of a choice that has to take place every single time we open our mouth. Yeah, it's not an easy practice. So there's dana, which connects us to our own inner resource. There's sila, or or precepts, which connects us to a framework that allows us to have some kind of a boundary of what is and is not suitable, skillful, appropriate, wise, and compassionate. Not as a moralistic judgment thing, but as a clarity about what actually supports and allows the heart to open and the mind to settle and what doesn't. Okay? And then there's Practice. Practice is not only about bringing mindfulness into the present moment. That is part of practice. Practice is about 
understanding what we are actually made out of, what is our essence, okay? It's not about bringing a little bit more care to everything. It's about looking at it very deeply and seeing who is here? What am I made out of? What actually doesn't change? So certainly mindfulness is an important ingredient in looking at who we are, but it is not the sum total of the path. Now, the reason why it's really amazing to understand who we are is because when we do, then what we can see is is that when all of the obscurations start to fall away, what we have is something that is clear, that is radiant, that is luminous, that is loving. And those things that I just described, those qualities, when we touch into essence, that is what is there when the other stuff clears away. It's not something we have to make. It's not something that we have to create. It's not something that we have to get. It's not something that we have to get rid of. We have to wake up to the fact that that is what is there when the other stuff falls away. Okay? And in waking up to our essence, we are in a radical different relationship with the world. Because it is no longer then driven by my desire to get and my fear to have and my confusion about not knowing who I am. And when I live without confusion, without fear, and without this grasping that takes the things, the positions, as me and mine, then what's left is compassion and wisdom and fearlessness to do the right thing. Compassion and wisdom and fearlessness to do the right thing is a wonderful way to live. Okay, this is the Buddha's map. This is the Buddha's instructions. This is the Buddha's path. This is what the Buddha set out as what is possible when we endeavor to practice. Now, here we are, a group of people in community. What happens? What happens is is that we come forward with our good intentions, and we bring forward what we have, And what we have is a combination of our good intentions and all of the stuff that's also here, which includes my preferences and my desires and the things that I like and my fears and my identity. Okay? So one of the interesting things about a community is that when a community is healthy, it has an identity. It works in a particular way. There's a sense of being part of it. There's a sense of having a way of welcoming new people and supporting the group 
It has an identity. And when each of us who are in long-standing relationship with a group that has an identity, then we are identified with the group. It's natural. And that's part of why it's nourishing. Okay? In terms of meditation, we have a very interesting place of inquiry. Okay? Generosity is asking us to show up Generosity is also inviting us to listen. When somebody has something to say that goes against my opinion or my preference or my sense of how it's supposed to be. Okay? Harmlessness is not only the position of not lashing out, Harmlessness is also the recognition of when we contract and tighten and defend and watching that. Practice, meditation practice, is to begin to see the mechanism of identity and how it arises in relationship and in community, watching it, watching the contraction that happens around when we feel threatened by something, watching the longing to protect, watching the longing to assert this is the way it's supposed to be, and therefore I cannot listen completely to what you have to say. Identification has in it the ability to selectively decide what is of value and what is not. If something feels like it is going to threaten my identity, then it becomes something that is not valued or cannot be integrated or processed. Now, living in a monastery for 20 years... What we saw was evolution of confusion consolidating into clarity, clarity moving into structure and form, structure and form being passed on to new members of the community, and new members of the community coming in and having all these bright, brilliant ideas, looking at things because they hadn't lived there for 20 years. And all of us who'd lived there for 20 years were saying, yes, but, yes, but, Yes, but, you know, we figured this out. We don't want to change it. This is the way it works. We don't want to talk about it. Okay? And so rather than invite a curiosity as to what they were seeing and exploring, if there were interesting things that we could distill from their fresh perspective, we would say, yes, but. And when we said yes, but, they didn't often feel very heard. And when they didn't feel heard, they felt a resistance to stepping forward and getting very involved or a kind of tension about how to navigate this. So as seniors, we needed to learn how to support each other to relax around our defendedness around how we thought it was supposed to be and learn how to listen 
to the brand new ones because sometimes the brand new ones could see things with fresh eyes that we no longer had. So there is a pristine value in new members in a community that needs to be understood and encouraged without it causing chaos by causing too much change too quickly to destabilize the sense of continuity and the sense of momentum of a group. But when a group of elders have the confidence to listen deeply and not push out what new members are saying, then in that process of presence, of awareness, of clarity, of generosity, of watching the movement of contraction, there's the ability to respond in a way where the person feels heard who's offering and the community can grow because there isn't an artificial boundary that is preventing new ideas from allowing freshness to take place. My experience living in the monastery was that the single biggest component that supported this was to see my own attachment based on my identity and to have the support of other seniors that gave me the permission and the encouragement to trust and to relax. When these two things came together, then there was more ability to listen to new ideas and distill from them what was really of service. Where did we need to change rather than ask them to come on board with our pre-existing structures? And fair enough, because living in a community of nuns in the situation that we were, we were changing a lot so much that there were times when we just had to call time out. It's like, I'm maxed out. I can't cope. I can't do any more processing. I can't think of changing things right now. Can we just keep it the way it is until I have more capacity to look at these things afresh? But when I could own what was going on for me and put it out on the table, people could hear that in a different way than if I said, yes, but, you know, yes, but. So honesty of what's actually happening, owning my own vulnerability as a human being, taking responsibility for my need for both consistency and congruence, as well as recognizing that all human beings have the longing to be heard, to be seen, to be valued, to have their ideas considered. And yet what we were trying to do was to take that and sift and filter and allow something to emerge that it was in service not only of the group that was present, but moving towards a training that supported things in the long term for a, for a, for a group of people who were, who were uh, coming after, you know, to consolidate ways of training and ways of practicing that actually benefited not only us, but the people who came after.
and doing all of that within the context of what is Dhamma. What does it mean to show up? What does it mean to really listen? What does it mean to value another human being just for the fact that they exist and that they have something that they want to offer? What does it mean to take responsibility for the places where I contract, where my own desires, to own my own opinions and preferences? And what does it mean to touch the identification with the group for my own sense of security. Now, I don't know how much of you know my own personal story, but I was living in this monastery for 20 years, and then four years ago I left and I came back to the States, and it was a big, huge shift moving from a a community that was well-supported to coming back in the States and being on my own and having to figure everything out and start everything from, like, the dirt up. You know, I didn't have... I didn't have support systems or foundations or invitations. I didn't have anything. I had to figure it all out, you know. And part of my own personal journey over the last several years has been really, really, really to look at my identification with what it means to be a nun. How identified am I with that? And to take it apart. And as I take apart the identification with being a nun, you know, for like the last three years or four years, I've been in this space of I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it means. I don't know if I'm staying. I don't know if I'm going. But I know that I have to actually look at this stuff. I know that I have to actually unravel. I have to see where am I grabbing because there's a fear of letting go. And the fear of letting go is if I let go, I don't have a clue in hell what's going to happen. You know, I've been... In the monastery now, I arrived in 1989. It's a few years, you know? So there's like a track record of like, I've put in some time, you know? And people know me in this way. If I unravel it all and get to a place where I decide, I don't know if this works for me anymore, then what? But if I'm afraid to ask those questions because I don't want to experience that uncertainty, then what? Then it means that I'm attached to the identity because I'm afraid of looking at my attachment because I'm afraid of what might happen if I don't know. What kind of life is that? Not one that I feel interested in living. So I have deliberately unraveled and gotten through the places where I felt the attachment and say, I have got to let this go and I don't know the outcome and I'm prepared to sit with this discomfort until clarity emerges. And it's been extremely uncomfortable and profoundly clarifying. And so I feel comfortable. I'm sitting in my own skin. I know what I'm doing, and I know why. And that's a very different experience from doing it because I feel driven or because I'm afraid of what happens if I don't do it. Every group, every person has an 
a process of identification which is important to create the stability so that we can do the work. And then after a certain point, we need to examine our identification. And see, how is this serving? How is this not serving? What needs to give and what needs to stay? Generosity is the ability to give. There is a lot of giving that's required in community. It's the willingness to show up. There's a lot of showing up that's required in practice and in community. Living with integrity, with harmlessness, with speech that is skillful, is a profound practice. Bringing attention to the formation of our own identity, watching it arise, seeing how important it is, how we are invested in it, is a profound practice and looking at what is there when this stuff starts to shift and change. And who am I? underneath all of it. When we come back into that place of clarity, of a mind that is radiant and luminous, that pervades everything, that is compassionate and is not dependent on the conditions around us, this is the purpose of the Buddha's teachings to illuminate a path that allows us to know that. The power of a group is that you can hold each other with love and with honesty to move each other forward in your own pace towards that that is meaningful. So I want to pause here, change the context, invite questions, answers, comments. And yes. question and it's not really easy to answer in terms of like formula but one of the things that I've been doing is insight dialogue and I've also been involved in other 
processes, not very much, but a little bit. There's a there's a program called the Authentic um, Community Leadership Program out of the Intercal Institute, and they're all about learning how to um, dial into uh, much more intimacy, much more depth. Insight dialogue is the process of bringing, um, stabilizing the qualities of meditation in the experience of communication. And yesterday I had a day long and had some of that in the day long. Yeah. And and the reason why I did that was because the last time I was here and did a day long, I also had some insight dialogue and there was a lot of interest in it, you know. So... Our habits around speaking is to go into chit-chat and social stuff, which often is incredibly superficial. So I agree that there's a limited value in that. But but what I don't agree is, is that's often the place where people need to start in order to learn how to develop more depth. But like with everything, it's a learning our normal patterns of communication don't help us go into depth. They help us stay superficial. So insight dialogue, as a, as a, like as a technique, as a way, is extremely um, disciplined and very structured. And what's incredible with insight dialogue is that what can happen is, is that two people can drop in to a place of almost like a a shared awareness that allows the capacity to see what's arising clearer because it's like your experience of mindfulness and awareness is magnified by the mindfulness and awareness of the partner who you're speaking with all right i've experienced this and i've seen other people experience it and i've heard it spoken about that when you understand how to use conversation to actually do deep inquiry, you are in a totally different kettle of fish. Yeah. That's not a 15-minute chit-chat over a cup of tea. That's having some depth and inquiry and capacity to focus attention to really use that time in in a deeper way. And even in the... So the insight dialogue is highly formalized and structured, and it takes a while to learn it and isn't so easy just to drop into it. But some of the things that happen with the authentic leadership community training is not as structured and would be possible to do in 15 minutes, like one exercise where you pair up with one other person and you ask some questions and you give some guidelines. That would be easier to do. Yeah? So... What it sounds like is the polarization is, is is that there are people who really value the depth of meditation but haven't found a way to engage in conversation in a way that is supportive of their uh, interest in meditation. And the people who are supportive of the meditation of the of the social are understanding that it's important that people find a way of connecting with each other. Yeah. So one of the issues is, is, is that, you know, when you only have two hours and you are wanting to meditate, wanting to have announcements, wanting to engage socially, wanting to have depth, wanting to, it's like, how much can you do, you know? And so what might be needed is to recognize that, well, maybe 
once every whatever, you have a different format where rather than having meditation, you actually go into more like insight dialogue where you just drop into communicating with each other in a way that allows tremendous depth but in relationship, you know, and have somebody come who's trained to do that, to guide you and what that looks like, yeah. So it's natural that what happens is, is that and rather than look at the larger perspective, people polarize around their preferences without actually seeing that, well, actually both sides have a really valid point. Yeah? Sometimes I feel that it's Dharma versus Sangha, and they're supposed to do it together. Yes, and... and, and um, See, one of the one of the places where again we have a we have a challenge is, is is that when lives are as full as they are and you've got two hours to accomplish everything, then there's a time pressure on what you can actually do in an evening, right? And if part of what is nourishing people is actually being able to drop into stillness because life is so full, then there's a way in which there's a what is being asked for is is to know the value of that and to protect that, yeah? What we also have to understand is, is, is that what we are dealing with here is an extract. Meditation in this format is an extract from a whole lifestyle, all right? So a couple of people were saying that, you know, I'm a monastic and that I do this full time. Well, as a monastic, meditation is a part of my life, but there's also uh, time for work and there's time for celebration and there's time for ritual. I just came from the ABS temple and there were monks that came from Los Angeles and from Arizona and from San Jose and from Santa Clara. And I came from Colorado and there were nuns that came from Santa Rosa and San Francisco and, and South Carolina so that we could all be together for um, a conference and then these festivals. And it was extraordinary to have the, the temple decorated and to have all this chanting and to have all of, this, all of these beautiful offerings. So here was a day that was set aside for festivities and hanging out with each other and celebrating and rejoicing. And the day is around the Sangha. Okay, but if the whole focus is on meditation, you know, and all you've got is two hours to do everything in the universe, there's going to be a conflict about getting everybody's needs met. You know, so part of the reason why I've been advocating to look at re-examine monasteries is that the monastery holds a space where where these other things have a natural place where they happen. You know where people can get involved and engaged. There's a natural way that they happen. So there are times for meditation, and there are times for celebration. There are times for for getting to know and supporting the Sangha, and there are times for depth of inquiry about the practice. Yeah? And so part of what's happening is, is that the tension is, is that you're trying to take an extract and turn it back into the whole plant. And you don't yet have a map on how to do that. And that's understandable. 
Yes. Um, I heard, of, um, I may have missed it, but first, uh, the second part of your talk, I was sort of hearing something basically that sounded to me like letting go or holding lightly to views and opinions. And on the other side of that, I, I um, seek discernment and wisdom who I go to for uh, teachings and advice, uh, people that I consider to have you know, more experience and, and more depth of understanding of these things. I feel that there's some sort of going back and forth between freshness and holding lightly, and also recognizing, uh, you know, wisdom when it's when it's right. So, and this also was an issue that came up in the monastery, you know, a lot. Because, you know, the Theravada, what Theravada means is the way of the elders. That's what it means. And so the idea is, is that the elders are elders because they've got more experience. And so it isn't the same as everybody is exactly the same. Elders are worthy of respect because they've they've got more experience, they have more understanding. Yeah. So that's true. It's also true that people coming in have the longing to be heard, the longing to be able to express their truth, and the longing for their uh, truth to be considered, okay? And it's also true that we're not living in a culture that has deference to elders. We're living in a culture that has this democratic kind of weird thing that's supposed to be operating our government. And, and so there's a sense when people come into a situation like this that we're all equal, okay? That we're all equal. We're all here. We're all equal. We're all people. We're all equal, right? So it is a learning how to respect elders and listen for the wisdom of what they are saying. And it is a learning for elders to see the difference between their attachment to an identity and to structure because they're familiar with it, and the discernment that this is actually really the best uh, in, in service of the best for the whole group. That's a learning. And it's a learning how communities can help people support their own inquiry when they are attached or when they're discerning, and to begin to recognize the difference between a view and opinion and conviction. Now, I have been through some things that were really quite strong. And I had views and opinions about them, and then they changed and they became conviction. And when they became conviction, the strength behind the conviction was formidable. But it wasn't loud. I knew in the marrow of my bones at that point, the difference between a view and opinion and conviction. It has a totally different feeling to it. Okay? Now, what is interesting in a peer-led group is, is, is that you haven't actually elected a group of elders. So you have, as part of your process, a way of sorting out how do you deal with the fact that you're in a democratic uh, world with people who've been here for 20 years and some are new? Do you have enough confidence in the people who've been here to actually relate to them as elders? Is that going to work? And do the elders have enough commitment to their practice to examine their own attachment 
Are they at that level where they can do that? And it's okay to be honest and say no. It's also okay to be honest and say yes. But these kinds of questions are useful to ask. Now, we're Theravada nuns. We are the way of the elders. As nuns, we had to figure out how to do this in a way that was less hierarchical and more collaborative because a hierarchical thing just absolutely did not work for Western women. (laughs) And even though we got better, there still was this frustration from the juniors when we would make decisions as elders that didn't actually include their process because they felt um, ripped off, left out, misunderstood. You know, they, it wasn't good for them. So, you know, we were, it was this constant whatever, you know, of how do, how do you do this? And, you, you know, doing consensus with whatever, 70 people here, you know, is not simple. So part of like we were trying to figure out is how do you ma- how do you make it go? You know, if we have to make consensus on everything, it's just like, you know, it was really it was hard. So you know, these are practical questions and they're important. But it's it's also wonderful that it's like this is where you're at, because this is what happens with a community that's been around for a while. Yeah. Yes. I know that you, I mean, obviously from what you said, you encountered situations where there were injustices or whatever. I'm wanting to compare uh, conflicts that come up for us and similar to conflicts that uh, came up for you with dealing with the elders set in their ways um, and right speech where we don't want to be together trashing somebody else, but we we want to improve the situation uh, without harming the other two. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the ways of exploring difficult situations or conflicts, personal conflicts uh, within Sangha. Um, It's wholesome. Okay, so let me just tell you a little story. I was traveling through Australia, and I was staying at a community, and they had bought a piece of property as a group of people in their, I think, 30s. And they, you know how it is when you're 30. You've got lots of energy, and you're very idealistic, and this is going to be great. So they bought this land, and it was going to be a Dhamma community that was based on ecological values. And, you know, they had this organic farm, and they all of the houses were green, and they didn't have a single septic system. It was all composting toilets. I mean, they were cool. <laughs> and, and they all practiced Dhamma, which was also cool. And they had a retreat center on the top of their property. And after about 10 years, they were at each other's throats. I mean, like death, you know. And so one of the founders thought, you know, this is this is miserable, you know, I can't I can't do this. So she said, well, either I'm going to have to bail, get out of this, or I'm going to have to learn how do you deal with conflict. So she got trained as a conflict resolution facilitator and learned skills on how do you deal with conflict. And there are special trainings to go through which is not the same as learning how to watch your breath, okay? It's not the same. 
And so when you're in a situation where you're navigating conflict, then I would suggest that you have a number of people or you have a facilitator come in and do some conflict resolution training with you so that as a group you learn how to hold this in a way that starts to move towards meeting everybody's needs and is congruent with your values. Yeah? Now, as nuns, you know, the kind of MO that we were given for the first, I don't know how many years, probably 10, was shut up and watch your mind. That was the MO, that if anything was a problem, you just shut up and sat on the cushion long enough, you'd figure it out. Well, after a while, we began to realize, actually, no, there are things you actually have to talk about. You can't just figure it out on your cushion by yourself. Yeah? So we had to learn how to do that, just like you will have to learn how to do that. We didn't know how to do that. So we picked up different modalities and work with them. And it was phenomenally valuable. Not easy and not quick. But we're not in this for easy and quick. Phenomenally valuable. Eventually what happened is the sisters developed the capacity to do some of this stuff ourselves without having an outside facilitator come in. That is gold. Well, on a lower level of minor conflicts, um, short of bringing in experts, I mean, actually, our Sangha has brought in help from time to time when things were difficult. Uh, but it seems like on an ongoing basis, well, maybe we just figure our things out for ourselves one at a time. Well, I mean, I think what happens is is there comes a critical mass where a group begins to decide this is enough of a priority to actually work with it as a group. And then things start to shift. Well, then they would have to be talking about what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) And it might be two people talking about, did you have this experience with... The third person, yeah. So what we did as nuns was we decided that, you know, there was enough kind of difficulty and we were out of our depth to figure it out by ourselves and the twos and the threes and the ones and the fours wasn't working in terms of moving towards more health and congruence. So we brought an outside facilitator in to help us. And as a part of that process, we also started developing more facilitation skills. Yeah. But we were pretty much on a page that there was enough aggro that it was worth doing something about it. Yeah. Because we had been doing this for 20 years, and what we were doing, it wasn't that we needed to do it more or harder. We needed other uh, intelligence into the system that we didn't have access to at that moment. 20-year point is an important point. That's an important point. Because after you've been doing it for 20 years, you know that you don't need to do this for another 20 years in order to do it better or harder or more. You can see what's been working, what hasn't been working, and what kinds of resources that you need to bring in that you don't yet have in the system. It's an important point. It took the nuns 20 years before we brought in somebody to help us. One more question, and I want to stop so you can have your time. Yes. Thank you for sharing everything. It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the comments that you made about leaving the monastery yeah. and uh, starting a new yeah. were just absolutely fascinating to me. Why? Because it's such a dramatic, to me, it felt like such a dramatic change to have to do. Start from scratch, as you said. So you, you talked about some of the, the things, and I was just wondering if there was any other ch- particular challenges that you were dealing with in that transition. That's a big question. That's not a minute and a half question. <laughs> it's been huge. I mean, like way huge. There were lots of particular challenges I was dealing with in that transition. Is there anything that was forefront or something that sort of stood out in in the room? Well, I think in my situation, the thing that stood out was trauma. You know, what actually precipitated my leaving and the kinds of things that happened around leaving were traumatic. And, you know, navigating all of that stuff and trauma was like, come on. <laughs> you know? It, because when you're in a trauma vortex, your system, your biochemistry, your thinking, your body is not working the same way. It's a, You're in a totally different... Um, kettle of fish so it's like you know a submarine sandwich you start at the outer layer you know and then you get into the tofu I mean eventually you get to the tofu (laughs) but you start with what you can reach and for me it was like you know for I don't know how long two years three years trauma work you know to be able to get to deeper layers and understand more what was going on and figure out name and label and understand the identity and all the rest of that. It's huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah. It's time for your break to enjoy each other. So, you know, thank you very much. And one thing that I just want to say with the, with the email list, you know, my own thing, I, you know, I, I have started from scratch and we are pulling things together, it's not yet very well organized. So um, the email list is a way to get information about retreats that I'm teaching, and I've got a couple that, are, that I've got planned for next year. And, um, but there's other things that I do also, like have calls on Sunday morning as, and share it with other facilitators. So, you know, people have been calling in, and we've been talking about these topics and how to work with them. So that there's ongoing ways of staying in contact, and there's also you know, blog posts on the website. There's there's lots of stuff. So, you know, I fly in and fly out, but there's ways of staying connected if you'd like to. Okay? Take care. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.